Amen. If you have a Bible with you tonight, you can begin turning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be in our third part uh, in our series on gospel clarity. Part of that hymn just sticks out to me as we approach our subject tonight, and that is the phrase, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I don't know if we always believe what the Bible says about us, but it says some ugly things. Tonight we're talking about the human condition. Now there's a lot of ways to do that, even if you're just speaking from the Bible, but particularly we're looking at what the Bible says about the human condition as it relates to the gospel and our need for salvation. Now, we talk about and think about ourselves in a lot of different categories. Social categories. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are introverts. All the introverts stand up. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Some of us don't know what we are. Like me, I'm an introvert, but I have friends. So I don't know what that is. Something in the middle. But we talk about ourselves socially. We talk about ourselves um, uh, in familial categories. Son, father, daughter, sister, brother, cousin, uncle. We talk about ourselves in ethnic categories. In categories of our place of birth, our citizenship. Political categories, if you've ever been on Facebook. But there's a category that is more significant than all of those put together when it comes to who we are as people, as persons, and that is the spiritual category. And in this category, friend, the the most important thing that the gospel says about you and about me and about the people that we live and work with and see every day, the most important thing the Bible says and the gospel has to say about our spiritual category is this label, sinner, sinner. We've been looking at the gospel and we've summarized it this way. There are these four truths that the gospel tells us. We are, number one, accountable to God. Number two, our problem is that we have rebelled against God. Three, God's solution to humanity's problem is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, for we can be included in this salvation. These four truths answer these four greatest questions of life. Who made us? And to whom are we accountable? What is our problem? What went wrong? What is God's solution to the problem? And how can I be included in God's solution. And we've summarized it uh, this way. In these four words, God, man, Christ, response. And last time we looked at truth number one, talking about God. And we didn't explore everything there is to explore about God, but in the context of the good news of Christianity. And if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, these are some of the most important things you'll have to come to grips with about God, about this God that Jesus spoke about, that he is the original creator. That means we don't create ourselves, we don't decide our purpose in life. 
God decides and determines that because he made us. What is this God like? Well, we know that he's at least righteous and holy. And if our most important category spiritually is that you and I are sinners, God's righteousness and holiness is then our biggest problem. We're going to talk about Jesus coming and saving and delivering and rescuing. But before we get to words like save and rescue and deliver, we have to be clear on what Jesus is saving us from. And it's not just emptiness or sadness or brokenness, although those are all byproducts of our problem. But he is saving us from our sin, and our sin is a problem because he is righteous and holy. Okay, so this God, then, what is his purpose in everything? Why did he make a world? Why did he make me? Well, his purpose in everything is his glory, him being known and having relationships with the people that he made. So what did God require of the people he made? To glorify and honor him by obeying him. To live life in his parameters, within the boundaries that he set. But something went horribly wrong. So we move into week number three as we look at the second great truth of the gospel, man the sinner. What did go wrong? Well, if you have your Bible again and you're in Genesis chapter 1, look with me beginning in verse number 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to read a few verses in chapter 1 and then uh, jump to chapter 2 and 3. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of of a tree yielding seed to you, it shall be for me. And every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. When God first made human beings, he made them with a purpose and in a certain position. Here's what that position was. Man was created subject to God. Subject to God. Now you see the word dominion in there a lot. That idea of man having authority. And man did have a great authority over the rest of creation. But not over God and thus not over himself. God's intention for this creature, humanity, was that they would live under his rule. But that they would live so in joy. He blessed them. He gave them blessing. Or in other words, he pronounced happiness on them. So a lot of times the the popular conception of the God of the Bible or of the God of Christianity is that he's a God that makes a lot of rules and doesn't want anyone to have fun. In fact, we see the opposite is the case. 
the multiplication of rules, especially in things like civil governments and even the home, is because of the effects and the pervasiveness and the creativity of sin. But before the fall, God only had one rule. And this rule-giving God, who only had one rule, begins addressing them with blessing. In other words, he's pronouncing happiness. So God's intention for them is joy as they live, having dominion over the earth, but under the rule of God. Furthermore, God has a job for them to do. They, they are to be his vice regents, ruling the world, but ruling under him. So they are to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and put the earth in submission. However, the first man and woman's rule over creation was not ultimate. It was not ultimate. So even as Adam and Eve exercised dominion and authority over the world, and over the garden in particular, they were to remember something. That this world that they were ruling over, that this world that they were, yes, um, more important to God than, more special to God than, this world, had they had a very limited sense of authority over it. And they were to remember that it ultimately did not belong to them, it belonged to God. And the picture of that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A rather long handful for a name. And you've realized that if you've tried to teach this story to your children, they usually get it wrong. But they at least know that it's a tree, at least in my case. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, this tree represents ultimate authority. Uh, It's not that if Adam and Eve ate from it, they would know that good and evil exist. After all, to obey rules in the first place, they have to know good and evil exist. Adam and Eve already know it's right to obey God. It's good to obey God and live in the garden and be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. And it would be evil not to do that, right? So as a category, Adam and Eve know that they exist. But this knowledge is a, it's a determinative knowledge. In other words, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to own that, to take that, to to take ownership of that tree is to say... I have the right to decide what is good and what is evil. Now, does anyone have that right? Well, yeah, God. So whose tree is it? God's. Not theirs. You get the picture, right? Adam and Eve knew that good and evil existed, but Adam and Eve were not to take from the tree because only God had the knowledge to decide what was good for them and what was bad for them. And every time Adam and Eve did not eat from the tree, every time they walked by the tree, which, by the way, was in the middle of the garden, it was unavoidable to see. That's part of the point. Every time they would walk by it, every time they were to avoid it, they were saying, in a way, this world isn't mine. This world is not hers. This world is God's. So I can't take everything I want. I can't do everything I want. This tree does not belong to me because after all, this world does not belong to me. I am not the king. I am a steward. God is king. And whenever they didn't eat from the tree, that's what they would say. But as we know, everything went wrong. So number two, man has sinned against God. Man has sinned against God. First, Adam sinned. We'll we'll, uh, just read chapter 3 and verse number 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
And that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Adam sins. Now, what's going on here? Well, again, God placed something in the universe that wasn't theirs. God placed something in the universe that would give them an opportunity to freely obey God. To say, as it were, this belongs to God, I don't. This world does not exist for Adam. This world exists for God's, for God's glory, for God's sake, literally, not for me. So when the, when the first man and woman took a bite, they were not just violating some arbitrary command. Oh, God said not to do this. They did it. They violated an arbitrary rule. That's how we may think of this passage because that's how we think about a lot of our own laws, don't we? 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour. Why do we have those signs? Well, because the city government decides that's going to be the speed limit. Now, what's the difference morally between 20 and 25? Well, not much. It's an arbitrary decision. But that's not what this law is like at all. This is not arbitrary. They were violating God's authority. They were saying, God, it's not enough to have every other tree on this globe. God, it's not enough. I want everything you have. I want God, I want everything you alone are entitled to. Isn't this the temptation of evil itself in the serpent's voice? You ought to be like God. It's like you have a right to be like God. Why should God keep for himself something that he should not give to you? No, this is no arbitrary law that they're just breaking. To eat the fruit is to reject God's authority over them and to declare their independence from him. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. So they seized on the one thing that God said they couldn't have. The one way they validated God's authority. The one way they could obey him. They stopped obeying him in that way. The Bible calls this disobedience sin. And in the Bible, the literal word for sin means to miss the mark. But don't get it wrong. When the Bible talks about sin, the the picture with an archer is not that you pull the arrow back, aim for the mark, and miss it just barely, a few inches away from a Robin Hood shot. The idea of sin in the Bible that the Bible presents means you're turning your back on the target and you're shooting in the opposite direction. So that what God's desires are, what God's purposes are, what God's goals are for you, you want to go in the opposite way and flatly, flat out disobey what God says. That's what Adam and Eve are doing here. They're missing the mark. They sinned. And of course the consequences were disastrous for them, their descendants, and as we know, all of creation. God executes his sentence of death. And, of course, they didn't die physically right away, but they began to die physically. As anyone here over a certain age knows, even before you're dead, sometimes you are feeling like you are starting to die. And so they did physically. But more than that, their spiritual life, the one that mattered most, ended immediately. That is their life with God. Their life in a friendship with God. Their life in union with God. That life 
was taken from them. Their hearts shriveled. Their mind became full of selfish and self-serving thoughts. Their eyes were darkened to God's beauty in the world. And their souls became void of the purpose and fulfillment that they were made for. But the Bible tells us more than this. You see, Genesis 3 is not just a tragic story. The import of which is to say something like, well, Adam and Eve sinned, look at what they did. Don't do that. They believed the serpent. Don't do that, kids. It's much worse than that. This story is, in a way, our story. The Bible teaches that through Adam, everyone has sinned. It's not just Adam and Eve that are guilty. These are not just examples to avoid. This is our story. As Romans 3 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul says later in Romans 5, by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Adam's rebellion is our rebellion. Now this, a lot of us may shrink back from that and say, wait, I don't know if this is exactly fair. Perhaps I wouldn't have done what Adam did. Maybe Adam is not a good representative. Well, whether you feel Adam is a good representative or not, he is the representative of the human race. You may not like all your representatives that you end up voting for. Whether you send them to the state capitol or you send them to D.C., they promised they would do one thing, they did something else, and you think, man, not a good representative. But we can't say that about Adam. Because Adam did what we all do. There's no use in saying, well, if I would have been Adam, I wouldn't have done that. It doesn't matter. We all have rebelled now. All of our hearts, like Adam's, are full of sin. That is, we come into this world not with God's desires, but with desires opposite of that. We come into this world not with God's values, but with different values. We come into this world not with God's purpose for life, but with our own that is dramatically different. And since, of course, we were made to live in a world in a relationship with God, since we come into this world without a relationship with God, life then does obviously feel empty and broken and hopeless and meaningless. Now, the gospel of Jesus is full of stumbling stones, and this is one. To human hearts like ours that stubbornly think of ourselves as good people with good intentions and good purposes, the idea that our hearts are fundamentally messed up is kind of revolting to us. We don't like it. But this is what the Bible says when it says we are sinners. But it's more than that. The Bible pictures sin in a certain kind of way, and that's one of the things we're going to be exploring. So number three, man's sin is rebellion. Man's sin is rebellion. So what are the implications of this? Well, well, first of all, for, here's the first implication. Number one, our sin is not only the effects of our sin. Did you get that? Our sin is not only the effects of our sin. Now, guilt is a problem, right? All of us know that intuitively. It's something everyone struggles with, even people that long to become completely amoral and and pretend as if there is no right and wrong, often those people are especially troubled by guilt. And that's why they desire some sort of worldview to help them explain their guilt away. But all of us realize that guilt is a terrible, terrible thing. It's an awful feeling. 
And almost as bad as guilt is shame. That is feeling bad before and in front of other people. We hate shame. That's a terrible thing. But ultimately, listen, the gospel is not that Jesus came to save you from guilt and shame. Purposelessness. That's a fun word to say. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. But the message of the gospel, the message that we are to share with our friends and neighbors is not that Jesus came to save them from having a purposeless life. The reason they have guilt, the reason they have shame, the reason we feel purposeless is because of the sin that pervades our hearts. We have a virus deep in our soul. And it has some very nasty side effects. But the gospel is not primarily about treating those side effects. Now, we, the side effects are treatable. The side effects are treatable. You, you, can, put, you can put enough painkiller um, on or uh, lidocaine on sores to make the sores not feel as bad. But if you have a sickness, your sickness is still there. And it could eventually hurt you or even kill you. And that's why church and our evangelism strategies, as we read the Bible together with people, as we have conversations with people, our goal is not to say things and give them things that will help them deal with their guilt and shame. Our goal is to show them how Jesus takes care of their ultimate problem, which is that they are rebels at heart against God. Our sin is not only the effects of our sin. Number two, our sin is more than a broken relationship. Our sin is more than a broken relationship. It is true that humans were created to live in fellowship with God. And sometimes we often talk about sin as if we've lost this relationship with God and God is trying to get it back. But we have to be really careful, friends, as we think about the gospel and we think about sin with this terminology. The relationship that was lost at the fall was not a relationship between equals, If you imagine a dating couple at an expensive restaurant, they're staring across the table at each other. They've just had a really bad fight, and now they're reconciling, and they tell each other how much they love each other. It's really cute, right? That's not at all an image of our relationship with God, though. This This is not equal parties we're talking about, where there's been some sort of relational riff, and we need to get back together, and everything's going to be okay. No, God is the king of the universe, we have committed the ultimate treason by rebelling against him. We have put our souls in danger of his judgment, and he's not overreacting. You say, well, that's not very palatable. Well, maybe it's not very palatable. But once we get to eventually talking about the grace of God, it makes, first of all, it's true, which is important, but then it also makes God's grace a lot more beautiful. You see, the message of the gospel is not we are equals with God. God God wants to be our friend again. He wants to be our buddies again and make everything okay. We are actually traitorous subjects, and yet God still loves us despite that. So much so that he would send his son to become one of us and die in our place. It makes the gospel much more beautiful when we are biblically honest and not deceitful about what sin really is. Number three, our sin runs deeper than just sins. Our sin runs deeper than just sins. There's a world of difference between admitting that you have sinned and acknowledging that you are a sinner. A world of difference. 
most people have no problem admitting they've done bad things. Most, the vast majority of people have no problem admitting they have done bad things. As long as they think these were isolated little mistakes mudding up the surface of an otherwise good, clean life. It's one thing, it's one thing to say, I've done some bad things. It's a totally different thing to say, I have a bad heart. It's one thing to say I've made some mistakes in my life. It's another thing to say that my greatest problems at the end of the day between me and God are actually my fault. Not my environment, not my personality, not my upbringing, but my heart that is out of line with its creator. Now I know, friends, when we evangelize people, this is not some sort of theological quiz where they have to say profound things. But if we're going to talk to people about how God is going to save them from their sin, we at least need a working definition of sin that has to be somewhat close to what the Bible says sin is. The message of the gospel is not God is coming for good people to fix their mistakes. In fact, as long as your friends that you're trying to evangelize see themselves that way, Jesus has something to say to them. He said, I didn't come to call righteous people to repentance. Remember he's talking about the context of uh, being a physician? I'm not here for the healthy. In other words, for those that think they're healthy, talking to the self-righteous. I'm here for those who know they are sick. (laughs) Friends, the gospel will save you and the gospel saves us, but it saves us as we admit to God that we are as sick as he says we are. We must agree with his diagnosis. Sin is not simply something on us, it is in us and of us. Matthew 15, 19, Mark 7, Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The sinful words that you speak, the sinful actions that I take, they are not isolated incidents. They arise out of an evil heart. Number four. Because this is who we are, because we are sinners whose hearts and wills are opposed to God, uh, because we have rebelled against God, then number four, our sin must be judged. Our sin must be judged. Because of who God is, and because of the position we have put ourselves in, we will have to face God's wrath. One of the most frightening statements in the Bible is found in Romans 3.19. Here, Paul indicts all of humanity with sin against God, Gentiles and Jews, everyone. And then he says this, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. David, you're saying a lot of really dark things. Are you trying to make us feel guilty? Yes. (laughs) Of course, I'm trying to tell you about the gospel. Of course, I'm trying to make you feel guilty. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. Once we grasp the cross to come to terms with our sin, because then we have this beginning of a realization of how much God loves us because he's willing to save us from this. Our sin incurs incurs God's judgment. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. We have been working, we work our whole lives on sin, and wages are coming. The check is in the mail, as it were, and that means death, spiritually now and eventually eternal. Now, a lot of people don't like this idea that God judges sin. 
In fact, some, some people that you talk to, their very hope that they will reach heaven one day is in the idea that God doesn't judge sin. In fact, they'll say something like this, well, I know I've done some bad things, but I believe in a really good God. So I think I'm going to go, I'll stand before him after I die, and he'll say, you know what? It's okay. It's not a big deal. I can take it. You're free to go into heaven. It's all good. Now, of course, if an earthly judge pardons someone of which their guilt was in no question, there was mountains of evidence, and if, let's say the guilty, the, the judge said this, the human judge says this, I know you're guilty, you've done these unspeakable crimes, there's no question you're guilty, but I'm such a good judge, I'm not going to sentence you to anything. Now, is that a good judge? We're talking here about infinite crimes committed against an infinite God. If you think that God is good, well, you're right. But that doesn't, friend, that doesn't make things okay for you, and it doesn't make things okay for the person that you're sharing the gospel with. God is good, and that is our biggest problem, because we are not good. We are sinners. Well, I'm sure I can make restitution in the afterlife. That's not what Jesus taught. If Jesus taught that, I would agree with you. Jesus didn't teach that. And when Jesus does teach parables about people in hell, like the rich man and Lazarus, they don't seem to change at all. Some object to hell because they imagine God forcing people to go there. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, John 3.36, I don't think I have it on the screen. I do. Uh, John 3.36 says this. If you're questioning whether or not God throws people into hell. I didn't have it marked, but I promise I do know where it is, in case you're worried. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? You can either face God's wrath or you can have eternal life. What's the distinguishing factor? Well, it's not an action taken on God's part. God's already taken action on his part, which is to provide the Son as a sacrifice for you to cleanse you from any and all sin. So then whether or not we go to hell is a decision we make. The question is whether or not we believe. Do we, ask, do we accept what God has done to take care of, of our sins in Christ? We'll talk more about that next time. Or do we say, no, God, you know what? I'm going to pay for my own sin. And if we say that, God allows us to. But he doesn't want us to. The Hell is locked, you could say, but the locks are on the inside, not the outside. There are two kinds of people. Those that say in this life to Jesus, your will be done. And those to whom Christ says in the next life, your will be done. No one goes to heaven that deserves to and no one goes to hell that did not choose to. So this is what the gospel says about us. This is what the gospel says about the human condition, about what it means to be a sinner. And this is not good news apart from what God has done for us in Christ. Now, how does this truth help us know, share, and live out the good news? Well, three things. So let, let, first, let's talk about how this helps us know the good news. If you're not a Christian yet, if you're not a Christian yet and you're considering it or you're thinking about it, 
Maybe you're visiting here, or maybe you're a member here or a member's kid here, but you've not come to faith. This is a very, very important truth. Now, this may not be as exciting as the truth about Jesus dying and resurrecting for your sin. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is meaningless if we don't agree with God on what our sin is. We must agree that Jesus and how Jesus diagnoses the human heart is true. If you want his rescue from it. We have some contemporary obstacles to this. Uh, The message often of people in the world is affirm yourself, love yourself, accept yourself, express yourself. And now it's moved on to socially force others to affirm yourself, force others to affirm how you express yourself, force others to love and accept yourself. So the idea that actually the self is kind of messed up may not be greeted with a lot of celebration, right? But this is the first step. If we're going to be transformed by the love of God, we have to see ourselves as creatures that desperately need transformation. The Bible, the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible is not that you're never a victim or that you've not been hurt by other people. No, you have been, I'm sure. But the message of the gospel is that your biggest, most ultimate problems that is, your separation between you and God, arise out of your own heart and desires. They're not someone else's fault. They're not. Today, typical secular people, and even Christians who are way more secular than they realize most of the time, we assume solutions are on the inside, problems on the outside. The gospel says your biggest problem is on the inside, and a solution is alien. It's outside of you. It comes from the outside, from Jesus, not on the inside. That is the kind of world-shaking, radical worldview change you're going to have to go through if you want to become a Christian. But it is worth it. (laughs) It's worth it. How does this truth help us share the gospel? How does this truth help us reach other people? Well, if we want to articulate the gospel well, friends, we cannot skip over what the Bible says about sin. One of, I believe it was uh, Chuck Colson. How many, how many of you have heard of Chuck Colson? Worked for Richard Nixon? Okay. Um, you need to read his book, Born Again. I'm sure some of you have read it. It was really popular uh, before I was born, a long time ago. It's an amazing, an amazing autobiography of conversion. And you know, one of the key turning points in uh, Chuck Colson's life, and he was, he was a bad dude, in case you didn't know. When he was in the, the Nixon administration, one of the other people that worked for Nixon said of Colson that if the administration wanted him to, he'd, he would run over his own grandmother. Not a very good guy, but gave the rest of his life to share the gospel with people after he got saved. Well, what happened to Chuck Colson? Well, if you read the book, about 350 pages worth of things happened to Chuck Colson. But one of the main turning points was when he was reading a copy of Mere Christianity that someone had given him. And uh, the, the moment that he put the book down and fell on his face and started weeping on, at, on the steering wheel of his car was when he, when he read the chapter about pride. And if you've read Mere Christianity and read what C.S. Lewis, Lewis says about pride, it is devastating stuff. It's, it's not nice at all. <laughs> and one of the things that Colson realized is what Jesus says about the human heart, how Jesus diagnoses the human heart, even though it's very dark and it's very black. It was as if he felt like this was the first time someone was telling the truth about how bad the heart really is. And that was one of the things that God used him 
that God used in his life to draw him to Christ. Now, a lot of times when we're sharing the gospel with our friends, we may want to pull back on what the Bible says about judgment, what the Bible says about the heart, what what the Bible says about the human condition, and just show them the positive stuff. But listen, the positive uh, results that the gospel produces, what God does for us in Christ, means nothing if we don't understand why he needs to do those things for us. So as you share the gospel, be honest about sin. You can't call people to repentance if they don't know what they're repenting from. Number three, and here's where we'll close. How do I live in the gospel as a Christian better by remembering this core truth? How can remembering what the Bible says about sin help me to live out the good news of Jesus? And I think this is uh, clear in in two ways. Number one, a full-throated biblical view of sin will help us appreciate what Jesus has done for us. The cross means so much more when you think about what it would be like to face God apart from the cross and what your sins have done. Second, knowing what the gospel says about your sin will help you run to your Savior for daily confession. 1 John 1, nine says that there is cleansing to be had. There is sanctifying grace to be had by confessing our sin to God. John says those that, those that say, I don't have any sin. Well, the, he said the truth isn't even in them. They're, they're not even Christians. But no, when we are a Christian, when we are saved, if you're following Jesus, one of the most important daily practices you can do is have this regular life of confession. Where as you face guilt for your sin, as you realize what you've done, you go to God with it and talk to God about it. Why in the world can we do that? Because Jesus is interceding for you. That's what he does. He's not sitting around waiting to come back with nothing to do. He's running the universe, and in addition to that, he is praying for his people and praying them into heaven. So go to him with your sin. Listen, when we remember how serious our sin is, it should help us fight the residual sin that is still within us. When when we have a light view of sin, here's what we do. We excuse it. That's That's the way I've always been. We minimize it. I'm not as bad as that person. And we accommodate it. That is, we, we, we make ways in our lives for it to, so we can practice it and keep in it. That's when we have a light view of sin. Friends, if we're remembering what the gospel says about our condition, about our hearts, we should be at war with the sin that's in us. We should be strategizing. We should be involving our spouses and our close friends and mentors at church and spiritual leaders. We should be enlisting them to help us strategize against it and fight it to rid it out of our lives. Why? Because Jesus suffered on the cross for that. Did you lose your temper today? That, that was part of Jesus' suffering on the cross. You realize that? Were you impulsive today? Were you gluttonous today? Were you dishonest today? Were you passive-aggressive towards someone today? Friends, if you're a Christian, we realize this was the part of the suffering that Jesus took on himself to save me. Confess it to God. Regularly. This thing that's in us is not meant to be accommodated or excused or shooed away. No, This calls for daily confession and daily cleansing. Sin is a big deal. 
That doesn't just mean your neighbor is going to face eternal judgment if they don't believe in Jesus. It means that gives us something to do every day as we live for Christ by purging through the Holy Spirit that leftover sin nature that's going to remain with us until Jesus comes back. So, if you're not a Christian, Jesus has some heavy words for you. But there's nothing that Jesus says about your heart that, ha- that outweighs what he was willing to die for in your place. And if you are a Christian, then living with this reality of sin in mind should push you to fight it and to confess it before God. Let's all stand.